Hi, welcome to the Sayers Conversations podcast series. Today, here to talk about AI, we have a very special guest, and that is Matt Cooperholtz. Enjoy. So welcome to a Sayers Conversation. Uh, this is actually a special edition. I'm calling this a special edition because um, we're all reading about AI. Um, and as a result, um, I've asked our friend, friend and AI scientist and advisor, Matt Cooperholtz from Cooperholtz Consulting, uh, he's also, um, I was very pleased and interested to see, he's now a Professor of Practice Centre, of the Practice Centre for AI and Future of Work at Deakin University. Um, he's been operating in the AI business for a very long time. That's how I, in fact, first had a business interac- interaction with him uh, around, I think what we were calling it was ethical AI. Anyway, Matt, welcome. Thanks, Russ. Great to see you. Um, this is the Sayers Conversation. And what we try really hard to do is uh, have a top chat with people that are expert in a particular field and see if we can't learn something. Um, certainly my intention is to learn something from you, Matt, and um, I'm hoping that if I learn something, then some of the listeners will as well. And as I said in the intro, you're, you, you are, you've been in the AI world for a long time, so maybe just give us a bit of background on your AI life. So, Russ, I started life as an actuary which is what you did when you were good at maths and you wanted to get into business. Yeah. And much to my horror at the time, I actually failed a subject in first year uni, <laughs> which meant I couldn't go on to second year actuarial. It was the first time I'd ever failed anything. Uh, and uh, I took up computer science. I'd always been into computers as a hobby. It was not particularly cool at the time. We're talking about late 70s through yeah. the 80s. Yeah. And um, fortuitously, failing this subject meant I picked up another major in computer science. So I actually started studying AI in my undergrad in the early 90s. Amazing, yep. And then as I was doing this actuarial work with a, a fantastic company that had put me through uni on scholarship, I realised that every opportunity I got, I was trying to integrate more and more computers. And I turned around one day and thought, I could probably do what I loved for a living if I took the actuarial rigour and maths Uh and combined it with computers and got involved in the late 90s in an AI (laughs) startup, So it was very early days, very, very good luck um, with the benefit of hindsight, right place and right time. So I've been using AI almost daily for probably over 25 years. Okay, so when you say I've been using AI almost daily for, let's call it 25 years, so let's go back 20 years ago, what was what did AI look like then? I think this is probably a really important point to make now, Russ. AI is a tool. We are essentially, as a species, a smart, hairless, tool-using type of ape. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we should only think of it as a tool. So it is a means to an end. Mm-hmm. So what AI looked like then is actually how AI should be thought of now, which is I have a problem or a challenge. Usually in my field of consulting, it's a business challenge or a societal challenge. Uh And AI is a way of working with usually data, but some information space to bring value or to help solve that challenge. Mm -hmm. So what it looked like in those days was a way of working with multiple dimensions of data to shed light on a problem the problems were often around customers so my clients had customers who were often churning they were leaving a telecommunications service or um, you know utilities service uh, or most interestingly leaving an airline because Uh leaving an airline is not porting your telephone number i just start seeing you less 
And the traditional way of looking at that was, you know, we want to understand why they're leaving. We'd like to stop them. Maybe it's with marketing. Maybe it's with direct communication. Maybe it's with pricing or product offers. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just with a bit more love. Yep. Um, Or we want to forecast or predict who's going to leave so we can intervene early. And without AI, with traditional statistics, you might look at that data and say, you know, here seem to be factors that are important. It's that prices rose or it's network force failing. AI as a tool in that space was just a great way to look at more data at the same time and not reduce things to, you know, small, low-dimensional relationships, but rather consider the entire customer relationship. Right, I got it. Okay, so plenty of variables. Okay, so when I think about AI, um, I can go on the you know optimist side. I go, well, in 1980, I was pretty keen on... I, I liked the idea, early 80s, of being a, a drummer. Like, I, I fully thought I'm going to be a professional musician um, and I'm going to be a drummer. And then the drum machine came out. I thought, oh, my God, you know, there's going to be... There's no future for drumming. When, of course, all the drum machine did was just make drumming better, right? So drummers now are using both drum machines and the traditional the traditional method, in order to be even more awesome at what they do. So I suppose I can look at AI like that or I can look at it and say um, people are, uh, people believe that there needs to be global guardrails. Um, this sounds like nuclear, you know, we could go nuclear. You should hold both ideas in your head at the same time. Kranzberg's law of technology is technology in and of itself is neither good nor bad. Nor is it neutral. And that last mm. bit's the confusing bit, right? It's ultimately what we do with it. Right. Um, so I, I think both of those things are correct, Russ. Uh-huh. Uh, look at chess. We might have thought that chess was destroyed when computers started beating grandmasters first off in 98 with Deep Blue beating Kasparov. Yeah. Chess has never been more popular on the global stage than it is today. And every single one of our mobile phones can beat Magnus Carlsen. Right. <laughs> okay. So... The other part of it is, you know, concepts like the machine is going to fill space. Uh, the, the machine, when the machine becomes smarter than humans, it will just fill the universe, which ultimately leads to the singularity. Uh, and then, as Isaac Asimov said, so what, then ha- what happens after that? Well, the machine says, let there be light. I like thinking about, I like thinking about those sort of concepts. Is this just in, is this in the world of, you know, space fiction or is there some truth to that? There's definitely some truth to it. Science fiction has usually steered reality, if you like. Um, The printing press took away handwriting scribes. Yeah. Actually helped knowledge spread. Yeah. Um, The knitting loom took away manual creation of textiles. We've seen examples in the agricultural revolution, we've seen examples in the industrial revolution, we've seen examples in the first digital revolution, Mm -hmm. and we're seeing some great examples now in the artificial intelligence revolution. Possibly this is different, same, same, but different, in that without anthropomorphising too much and saying these are machines trying to be smart like humans, the access to knowledge and the automation, the ability for these machines to self-modify and use themselves, does pose new risks. But then again, the knitting, the steam-driven knitting loom presented new risks to humans as well. You could fall into the thing and get your arm torn off. Right, okay. So beware the hype. Um, I think a balanced view is important. I think our first great AI experiment was social media and we failed dismally. 
Exactly. In terms of regulation? Regulation and forward thinking about the implication of a goal-seeking function. Uh, so okay. this is the essence of it. AI and computers in general will only do what they're told to do. Uh-huh. And social media was told maximize time on site. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that was the goal, the goal seeking function, maximize time on site, which therefore meant that the algorithm determined that the easiest way to predict accurately greatest time on site and to continue with next best offer of video was to nudge people towards extremes where they're more dependable. Um, and the reason why we want people to stay on site longer, of course, time spent viewing is to generate revenue. Under that model, yes. Yeah. I can think of some other models with yeah. government subsidies where time spent on site to increase education and awareness and a balanced view <laughs> might give a tax break and therefore we'd have a different type of goal-seeking function. Oh, I like where you're going there. So does anything like that exist? Well, technology is neither good nor bad, uh, right. it nor just is it neutral. Okay. What about in the education sector mm-hmm. where we're not purely profit-driven mm. yep. um, and, and we're under pressure to reinvent the education model? Yeah especially in the face of this AI, and one thing to do is say, oh, no, everyone's going to cheat, this is horrible. Another thing to do is say, wow, what an amazing tool now at everyone's disposal. We could really have a phase change in an industry that has remained largely unchanged for hundreds of years. Yeah, it was interesting to read, um, I think it was Greg Sheridan today, he was talking about um, what an an AI offers an amazing opportunity to go back to the classics. (laughs) And, And to pursue creativity for creativity's sake. Augmented creativity, right? Mm. AI in terms of augmented intelligence, which is that idea of we're leaving humans in the loop. It's not autonomous or automated intelligence. That's two other AIs I use where humans are out of the loop. Mm -hmm. But we're augmenting them with creativity. So one of the ways my son actually um, uses these tools is for inspiration, not the final product. Imagine you're creating a new science fiction movie want to have an alien um, mm. that looks different to anything you've seen before. Yeah. You deliberately raise the temperature of an AI, which means you let it behave more randomly, you let it hallucinate a bit harder, uh. Uh, you give it some prompts and you start to see some crazy idea for aliens that the human then comes back in the loop and refines and then maybe uses another tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that you use the word hallucination then um, mm. because I have heard recently that actually ChatGPT, which I suppose is the headline act, ChatGPT um, does hallucinate. Yes. And so explain that. Uh, it's, again, you know, borrowing a human term and redefining it for computer science. Hallucination is, uh, it states something and it states it so confidently that you believe it to be a fact, but it's actually completely made up. It's yeah. a hallucination. Yeah, so it's, it's bringing together a, a number of inputs, data inputs, and coming up with what it thinks is the answer, but it's not. Remember oh, so it's not wrong, though. That's, that's no, it's wrong. Yeah, it is wrong. It's wrong, but okay. it says it in a way that's correct. Now, <laughs> if, if you are asking for medical advice, right. that's not a good thing. We don't want it to be hallucinating. And, and we're, it's brand new. It's two minutes old. We're moving yeah. towards safeguards to stop hallucination. Remember that the knowledge compressed into the general generative, uh, sorry, generative pre-trained transformers uh-huh. uh, in, in GPT and chat GPT yeah. We're frozen at September 21. Right. So ask it anything beyond then, yeah. and it's got to be making it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's also ways of using it to limit those hallucinations, and there's a lot of clever thinking around safeguards and programs that work in tandem to fact-check and to... It, this is only one technology. AI is, in fact, a whole field. Yeah. 
And when these things combine, mm. you'll have a more reliable, stronger result. I think what's interesting about the notion of hallucination in, in that that's it's a negative word, right? Oh, it's, a, it's hallucinating. You could, though, say it's just being creative. Um, well, I don't think hallucinating is necessarily negative. Um, <laughs> when someone is being creative, yeah. some of the, you know, the most creative novels, ideas and works of art yes. are non-traditional thinking. I'm playing with something called Dream GPT. Yeah. Dream Beach GPT is a version of this algorithm where it's deliberately encouraged to hallucinate. And it does that to try and spurn creative ideas and new thinking. Right. So I suppose that's where I, that is where I was going. And I'm wondering, do I like that? Why not? Uh, because the bit that makes us different from machines is our creativity. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you my theory on creativity. Yeah, yeah please. This, yeah. Because I, I, I think we should talk about consciousness as well. And I think that these machines for the first time are giving us creativity without consciousness. And I think how that works, is nature creative when it, when it makes some interesting swirls on a beach? with a wave, I'm not sure. But let's talk about the creativity that you get from um, novel prose or an image program. Uh -huh. There are three factors involved. The models are very large and complex. Right? They, yep. they, they weren't creative until they hit a certain size. It was the same approach, just more of it. Got it, yep. Like our brains. I'm not sure a worm is creative with less neurons, uh -huh, yep. but something happened when we got enough neurons yep, that yep. we became creative. Yep. Second of all, they've been exposed to a lot of data. Yep. I'm not sure a newborn baby is inherently creative. Yep, yep, yep. yep. And the third thing, and this is, I think, the most important change from what's happened in the past. Our brains work on chemicals, neural networks with uh, electrochemical reactions, and they are imperfect. In other words, neurons will misfire. You know, it's not a binary yes or no like uh -huh. in a computer. Um, and I, I think that misfiring, together with being large and complex, together with having stored lots of data, actually is where creativity comes from. An idea was accidentally linked to a memory, was accidentally linked to something that you're about to say, and creativity emerges. All of these technologies that we are seeing as creative actually have randomness. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I think that invent of randomness when you run gpt with no randomness and it only picks the most likely next word it's distinctly less creative got it it's when it picks from a distribution with some randomness or when midjourney or dali creates an image essentially by working backwards from random noise uh, yeah so i think randomness was the missing piece of the puzzle that allowed machines to be creative and does the the idea i assume the idea of inventive randomness may lead to breakthroughs that we haven't seen before in this in let's say in the sci in the world of science in the world of medicine all kinds of things with genetic algorithms for design where you give a, a computer a parameter like we need this thing to be strong and light um and and a genetic algorithm is something that evolves so it works on its previous one and it starts with some random seeds so there's randomness in it and you get these most amazing organic almost um lifelike bone structures that have solved that problem of being light and strong right. um, in medicine you know protein folding through alpha fold i'm pretty sure has got a, a bunch of random seeds in terms of how it tries to find the best solution through what we call a recurrent deep learning neural network um, so yeah i think the addition of randomness yeah has been um, 
a, a real breakthrough. There's already been some breakthroughs, that, you know, like practical breakthroughs in terms of um, medicine design. And let's not let's not not attribute this to yeah. the humans. Ultimately, yeah. they created the thing that yeah the 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 uh, AI was created by humans in the first place. And now the AI is helping create other AI. Yeah, it's bootstrapping. Yeah, but we started this. <laughs> uh, it's it's our crowning achievement as a species. Maybe splitting the atom was as well, and look where that took us. Okay, well, so which is interesting, is it not? Because uh, you know the the notion of um, well, the day so nuclear is interesting, isn't it? It, it? The parallel is there. It can wipe us out, um, but equally it can power us in a wonderful green way. You can hammer in an nail, or you can hammer my head. But <laughs> you know, there's there's an ancient part of us that is still very um, war warlike. Yeah, it's not that ancient at the moment. If you look at the world, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes our tools, we work naturally with this idea of make us better to the detriment of them. Yeah. And the sooner we think of us as not just the entire species but the entire planet yeah, yeah. and them as well other things, yeah, viruses. Yes. I mean, we would never have had a vaccine both developed and then distributed as quickly as we did without these technologies. Wasn't that incredible? I mean, one of the things which I don't know that we, I, we didn't celebrate in – I don't think we celebrated it here at all, actually um, – the, the most emotional I got during the pandemic was when the woman from Oxford who create, who designed AstraZeneca, when she turned up at Wimbledon, do you remember that? Yeah. And she was just given a, a standing ovation that went for a very long time. And it, it struck me that they appreciated what had been achieved so quickly and everyone appreciated that was what was going to get us out of the situation that we were in. Weren't you then... Operation Warp Speed. Yeah. That was Trump's version. Yeah. But still, I mean, it, it, it's so weird, isn't it? Is it not? He did create Operation Warp Speed and the vaccine was created in Warp Speed. Uh, in the meantime, he was doing press conferences and saying silly things. But not just Trump. I was on a roller coaster ride of emotions when the virus hit. I said, AI is going to get us out of this in record time. Yeah, yeah. And then when that happened... Yeah. Um, and we then had such massive rejection. Oh, it was utterly insane for anti-scientific reasons. It was. It was. I lost faith in yeah. in some of humanity with that. Russ, yeah, it was I, leadership at its worst. I, I, I'm more worried about the the followership. You know, uh-huh. the, the the large number of Australians and elsewhere that immediately leapt to the distrust yeah. of. Probably one of the most amazing things we've done. Yeah, yeah. It made me very sad. Yeah, I buy it. Um, war. We were just you. We, we mentioned that. You mentioned that a moment ago. Did you see that um, the Ukrainians created a, f- uh, a fake Putin? Yep. Are we going to be? Li- at what point are we going to believe? Are we going to know what to believe? I love this topic. <laughs> I didn't know, but I thought you might. Um, Russ, this is about trust, and. I think that our success as a species with these tools and moreover the interconnectedness, the bombardment of information that comes from the interconnectedness and the speed of information is both breaking trust and these technologies with deep fakes um, are harming trust and the spread of disinformation ultimately the ability for anyone to publish. You've only got to listen to Elon Musk saying... This is the reason why I think Trump should be back on Twitter. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to weigh in on good, bad, or free speech, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think that these technologies are going to solve this problem. It's neither good nor bad. It's what we do with it. Yeah. Okay. So think about in the bottom of your browser for a long time. You've seen a padlock, which lets you know that it's really your bank, and that's an incredible invention. Again humanity called asynchronous encryption and digital certification and that uses the fact that very 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 large numbers are easy to multiply together but difficult to factorize right that's essentially the maths behind it Uh but what it allowed us to do was to use math to certify that that is that certificate holder okay okay so that's the first breakthrough the second breakthrough so that's was... So that's the blockchain world? No, this is before that. pre block okay. This is asynchronous encryption, which solved the key distribution problem of World War II. Okay. Uh, yeah. So in World War II, when you wanted to have a key to decrypt something, you had to get those code books out to all of your submarines and all of your fleets, and they looked it up. Okay. Um, imagine I give you a box with a padlock, but I had to ensure that everyone who wanted to open my box yes. had a key. Got it. Right? Now, imagine instead that I gave everyone a padlock. And you could put a padlock on, on anything and send it back and only I had the key. Yeah, very cool. So it's the maths behind that. And that is just a very clever mathematical trick if you look up RSA, um, named after the three guys that invented it. Yeah. Um, that was a huge breakthrough in the key distribution problem and that's how we can trust when there's a padlock in the bottom of our browser that it's actually our bank. Has the world, has the world of data... Um, as we've digitised the world, has enough money, has enough effort been put into the padlock? The padlock had to take another important step and and I'll finish off why I think trust is a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. The trust that you bring up of was that Putin? Even though we had the the padlock, the asynchronous encryption, we still had centralisation in terms of um, certificate issuers or, you know, we, we still only really trusted our bank. Yeah. Um, there was another challenge to be solved and that was the challenge of decentralised trust and that is the world of blockchain or rather distributed ledgers and that's another phase change in the ability to have trust between parties in a distributed network without having to have someone in the middle. Uh So I can put something on a ledger, imagine it's just like a very big book and everyone can write in it and if I write in it you know that I wrote in it. You yeah. can't change what I wrote. Right, yeah. And you can look at what I wrote. Yeah. So imagine if what my phone automatically writes, and I'm actually very tempted to to do this for the Android and the Apple infrastructure, but I suspect it'll be part of all operating systems before too long. Right. Every photograph you take has a unique digital signature. That signature is signed with your certificate that belongs to your phone. Got it. That's placed on a blockchain. Got it. I don't think that any photo was taken by Russell unless yes, it was. Unless it was. So yeah. we move from not knowing what not to trust yeah. to only knowing what to trust. We move to a whitelist world because deep fakes are so pervasive and so real, but it will be in the background. That's genuinely your yeah. child's voice, not a copy. Okay. Well, we need that, don't we? Yep. <laughs> we sort of need it now. It, it, it's, it was interesting. I was at a, um, having dinner with a, a few people, young 20-year-olds, uh, and they were talking about how they'd li- they like the idea of having a wax seal, um, like literal, not a, digi- not a digital wax seal, but literally, you know, like <laughs> a ring, wax, bang, that's mine. 
I've got one of those. <laughs> I like mixing old tech with new tech. I sealed a bunch of letters with a wax seal the other day and burnt my finger. But um, yeah. th- this is that, Russ. Right. Um, but to make it easy for everyone to use, it's got to be in at the operating system level, whether it's Windows or Mac or your iPhone or otherwise. Mm-hmm. It's just got to be part of a system that we inherently trust that helps provide trust in a world where technology means trust is challenged. Okay, so the digitisation of the world, um, it, it, I'm putting you in charge. You're, you're in charge of that. So what do you, and I assume you think guardrails are important, maybe, maybe you don't. No, I absolutely do. Uh, I like regulation. I think um, <laughs> David Walsh wrote a fantastic blog defending why he needed everyone who worked at Mona to be vaccinated. Right. He talked about these annoying laws that stop him doing what he wanted and he was talking about traffic lights. Why do I have to stop at a red traffic yes, light? Yes, I remember. Yep. Why should you not drink drive at 0.15? Yeah. Or yep. drive at 180 down Collins Street? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why should you pay taxes? Yep. Because there's stuff that just makes society work. Yeah. As soon as there's more than 150 roughly of us living together, uh. we need stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we need the regulations and no matter what field we're talking about. And it doesn't have to be top-down centralised regulation. Mm-hmm. There are ways that we regulate behaviour all the time with consumers voting with their feet, for example. Yeah. But we need trust, we need transparency, we quite often need independent third parties who we can trust to audit and sign off on these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but absolutely, I believe in, in guardrails. Does there need to be uh, a minister for digital trust? Uh, there probably needs to be some sort of global consortium that works on it together because this is ultimately borderless. Uh, yeah, indeed. Okay, so you need, so you need uh, something like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty for... The digitisation of the world. Adam Smith's invisible hand mm-hmm. did not solve for everything. Okay. If you, Adam Smith's invisible hand is what led social media to perpetuate hate and misinformation interview uh, in uh, elections. Yeah. Okay. So it's not. It's not a. We, yes. It's a. It's an open marketplace for ideas, but when the ideas land, uh, we need to just assess. And not just be driven by the dollar, but by some other measure of value. Okay, so the, the notion of what, triple bottom line, is that where we're going, or is that too consultancy? No, that's fine. Yeah. Triple bottom line just said, you know, we might now call it, um, look, uh, at, look at ESG yeah. regulation. Yeah, yeah. How great is that, that you actually have to look at your supply chains for modern slavery? It's very good. So that sort of thing for digital trust. So globalisation, where do you stand on that? Which part of it? Um, any part of it. That's not a great way. Not a great answer from me. <laughs> Tell me what you mean. Um, okay, I I think there's an argument that we actually had peak globalization pre-pandemic. I, I I don't mind reading about that and thinking actually I can half buy that. Hmm. You know, it's it's very easy for us to travel the world and access our files anywhere and put a piece of plastic in a hole in the wall and get out local currency. Yeah. Um, but you still have Russia sitting um, with the EU in security forums, right? <laughs> you know, we still have we still have the well, stuff that's going better on. Better in the tent. Well, LBJ. Um, you know, I think I think parts of it are certainly accelerating Russian connectedness. We've never been more connected before than before. And uh, in my holiday recently in Japan, just returned. 
the ability to hold my phone up to um, you know incomprehensible Japanese text on the wall and have it yeah. visually translated for me. And um, my partner talked about how her ex-husband and her used to fight because they couldn't find an address in Japan because it's impossible and yeah. now we can do that easily with Google yeah. Maps anywhere. These things are fantastic and they're bringing the world closer yeah. and they're still allowing cultures to be unique yes. yeah. and hold appeal. We're not talking about turning everything grey or vanilla. So, Matt, I didn't introduce you to Freddie earlier. I should have. So, Freddie's from Good One. They produce the Sayers Conversation. Um, and what I, I, I ask Freddie in a minute, I ask Freddie if he's got anything he might want to ask you, all right? So... Um, He's, he might he might even be as smart as you, so just just watch out. So, I've written ran two random things down here for no reason other than they're just random things. Um, asymmetrical warfare. So, weaponization of AI has probably already happened. When I talked about the social media experiment and the ability to target misinformation at certain parties and create discord, right. There was a view that um, enemy, or well, unfriendly nation states were deliberately proliferating on both sides of the abortion debate to create discord. Right. Yep. More significantly, um, very, very intelligent computer viruses and cyber attacks yep. are assisted by AI to find these vulnerabilities, and um, you know I think there's a fantastic example of that, which um, put the Iranian nuclear weapons program. Um, indefinitely on hold by infiltrating the centrifuges that were trying to enrich the uranium. Uh. You know, that's that's asymmetrical yep. AI warfare, right? Got it. Um, Black Swan event. <laughs> well, <it's>, um, pandemic? <laughs> yeah. So can you see a Black Swan event in the world of AI? It's a great question. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, I, you've heard me talk a lot about exponentiality yep. and the fact that these things are just continuous but now so steep that they appear to be a different place and that they all combine. But we could have a, a very rapid breakthrough, uh, let's say, in quantum computing combined with a new type of AI algorithm that mixes right. the best of a transformer model with a something else model. Yeah. I mean, transformers are still only one way. They don't have feedback and recurrence. You know, they, even absent quantum, they might be mixed in a certain way. We've seen the resurgence of analog computing, Russ, <laughs> right, which is cheaper because one of the concerns with this technology is it's um, expensive, and I just use that mainly in terms of power, distrib power consumption. Yep, yep. So when you're trying to do a bunch of uh, AI at the edge, let's say intelligent computer vision, it turns out these neural networks, these deep neural networks that have already been built, which we're now attempting to just run, um, they have an analog paradigm. And if you build back an analog computer, and a lot of people are doing this uh, investigation at the moment, um, you can run them much, 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 much more cheaply. So the black swan event might actually be that neural networks are, yeah. um, you know, much more available at much lower cost because we've switched from digital back to analogue or a hybrid of the two. I was reading Catherine Wood uh, from ARC uh, last week. She was actually in Australia, very famous, you know, investor. Um, she was big on um, Bitcoin. Anyway, she said uh, this time next year we are going to be um, – headlines are going to be AI has improved productivity to such a level that there's no longer an issue with inflation, interest rates are on their way down. 
the economy is a very complex thing and it's hard to see what effect something will have, but the first part of that statement is already here. Right, okay. My own personal productivity... Yes. ...as a coder, as someone that has to use computers to get a job done, I used to have a team of 300 people where I would say, hey, I need you to do this and this and this and then make it do this, this and this. Right, yeah. And I was worried about no longer having access to that team to get the job done, to solve the problems. I am using GPT uh, to write that code. I'm using it. It's not writing perfect code, but because I know enough to perfect it, I conservatively estimate a 10x increase of my productivity. Yeah. And not only that, it's helping me enter states of flow. I love it. There was a woman uh, in the Fin Review today, and um, she says that ChatGPT is saving her five hours a week and one hundred and fifty dollars a week on her grocery bill. Boring meal planning. Come on. <laughs> in the Fin Review, I, was, I know. I was I just, very interested in that because, of course, the article above it was going, "Oh, AI, what's going to happen to the world?" You know. So, I love the fact that the editor put a, a very practical article, um, and you know, you're, you, you yourself are using it practically. Russ, we've got to beware the hype. You know more than anyone else. If it bleeds, it leads. Um, of course we want to we should have a balanced view and we should be considering not the dangers of the technology today but the pace at which it's moving and now able to self-improve i highly recommend max tegmark who runs the center for ai at mit and was interviewed by lex fridman on his amazing podcast. Max Teg Tegmark. He was okay. his first guest and he's also his 305th guest. Okay, beautiful. And, and Max is down the conservative end. He led the letter for pause. Uh-huh. Lex Fridman also interviews Sam Altman, uh-huh. uh, the CEO of OpenAI, who's putting these tools out there, um, who's kind of on the other end of the spectrum, but Sam Altman is also called, calling for guardrails and responsible AI, or as you wanted to call it, AI right, which exactly. I think is, is perfect. <laughs> I'm seeing Sam Altman talk on Friday, and I'm super excited. Brilliant. I'm like a fanboy. Good on He's you, here mate. in Melbourne. Oh, really? Mm. Um, I might come with you. Freddie, um, any questions for Matt? Thanks, Russ, and thank you, Matt. Um, so uh, hearing you talk more generally about um, AI and hearing uh, about it hallucinate, so thinking about me, myself, I, I have or I am a bioeconomy, meaning that uh, I know I sort of, I am connected to reality because I need food or there are parts of reality that can kill me. So all of my thoughts are regulated or informed by, um, you know, how fitted I am to the environment. Um, Thinking about that, is AI connected to reality at all? That's that goal-seeking part of the AI what is it trying to do mm-hmm. you ultimately are trying to pass on your genes um, society has meant that not everyone needs to pass on their genes you can be a priest or a gay man and not have to pass on your genes with, and still contribute meaningfully to society but ultimately if this organism doesn't do what it's meant to do which is procreate and feed yourself and not get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger along the way you have failed yeah um, AI is shaped by, for example, maximise time on site, optimise the delivery uh, route for newspapers, um, pick right. up rubbish most effectively. Yes. The, its connection to reality is given to it by its programmers and that is the goal function. That's what it's seeking to optimise. Well, I love it. Anything else there, Freddie? No, that's me. All right. Uh, Matt, it's been really 
really enlightening, uh, invigorating, uh, a wonderful discussion. Thank you. On behalf of all the listeners, I want to thank you. We've been speaking to Matt Cooper-Holtz from Matt Cooper-Holtz Consultancy. He's an AI scientist and advisor. He's also at Deakin Uni, where he's Professor of Practice at the Practice Centre for AI and the Future of Work. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much, Russ. Thanks, Freddie.